The reasonableness bill, a key part of Netanyahu's judicial reforms, has passed. Russia sits on the brink of collapse as the Ukrainian counteroffensive continues. And finally, why Taiwan is the biggest winner and China the biggest loser in the Ukraine war. Welcome to Inside Israel News, your home for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news politics, current events in the Middle East, and world news. Or as the internet trolls say, mouthpiece of the Zionist conspiracy, spokesman for the elders of Zion, highly paid propagandist of the Mossad. Yeah, no. This is Inside Israel News. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Welcome back, insiders. Uh, once again, it's been a little bit since the last episode, and I apologize for that, but obviously, with the recent reform bill passage, uh, I, I just have to get an episode in, and there's a few other things to talk about as well. As always, yours truly, Isaac Kite, the gregarious Vulcan, your mad genius, your uh, bringing, bringing uh, <laughs> you know, the, the rational, reasonable, down-to-earth analysis of the news, uh, that, uh, as I've joked before, in, in insane times, the sane sound crazy. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, might as well be a mad genius, I guess. Anyway, uh, it has been, it has been exciting. Uh, this is episode 99. Episode 100 is your questions. I will take, uh, listener questions and, uh, reach out to me with those questions. We've got a few in already. would like to have a few more. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Inside Israel News, uh, also on Instagram and TikTok, Twitter. Twitter is an easy place to find me. <clears throat> I'm all over the place on Twitter, uh, and <laughs> quite all over the place, uh, which brings me to my funny segment. I, I'm trying to add a little more humor to the show, <laughs> as I've said before. Uh, no poetry this time. <laughs> Yeah, that uh, I, I got a lot of interesting feedback for that. A few laughs and a few chuckles. So at least there's that. I mean, if it if it lightens if it lightens the mood and, and brightens someone's day, it's a good thing. But um, on Twitter recently, with the reasonable bill, reasonableness judicial reform passing, uh, Thomas Friedman, the longtime anti-Israel reporter uh, who uh made you know the the founder of Hezbollah and all of the Hezbollah fighters sound like heroes fighting for the their great cause anyway he he posted uh some article he'd written for um that, that was published in a left-wing news source anyway and the title was you know only Biden can save Israel now i, I it it's it's that stupid there's so much to unpack there. I'm not even going to go into it. So I saw this. And of course, yours truly, your mad genius, your gregarious Vulcan could not let that pass without some kind of comment. So, uh, of course, I replied to this ridiculous tweet with, you know, Israelis can take care of themselves. And who asked this schloff anyway? Uh, schloff is a Yiddish term, means somebody who's poorly dressed, ill, ill-kempt. I mean, just, you know, uh, somebody who's just kind of troubled. In any case, uh, so it's a gentle insult, I guess you could say. Uh, no, no, nobody asked Thomas Friedman his opinion. His opinion doesn't matter because he's a he's a loser. He's a has been, first of all, and for a long time he's had the Middle East completely wrong. Uh, his his great moment of uh, supreme, uh, uh, 
you know, consciousness, his, his moment in the sun, his apex, you know, the, his high watermark, the moment when he was of greatest relevance to the world was when he wrote uh, Lexus and the Olive Tree and the follow-up, The World is Flat, in which he described globalization. And others had already done the same thing. He, he was fortunate that he was at the right time to become popular for writing about it and writing about it in the way he did. So for one brief moment, for one glimmer, for a flash in the pan in the early aughts, um, Thomas Friedman was relevant. But uh, yeah, that, that was about 20 years ago. So, <laughs> we, you know, <laughs> 1999, 2003, something like that. I mean, you know, it, it's all it's all long, long, long deep in the past in, in, in modern times. So anyway. I just, you know, I, I had to have a little fun with it. Uh, but, you know, again, like, you know, all these people with the, you know, Israel, Israel the democracy is ending. And uh, I mean, come on, people. Seriously. Anyway. Like I said, I mean, these days, the more rational and more intelligent you sound, the crazier you are. Because everyone else is out there screaming and shouting madness uh, into the night. I mean, it's like, you know, we're all... <clears throat> You know, uh, everybody's eating the wild mushrooms and dancing about the fire pit, screaming and yelling all kinds of things. And we got one person or two people who are out here kind of like, um, guys, you know, <laughs> and uh, we're, we're the crazy ones. Anyway, oh, exciting times. Well, I will dive right in to um, a couple of things here. Uh, first of all, the World Cup is on Women's World Cup, the women's national team. Go Team USA. Uh, there's some politics around it, uh, you know, Megan Rapinoe and, and is one person. She's, you know, out there being a, you know, big time lefty, whatever, and saying crazy things. You know, I give sports players a lot of leeway for what they say off the field because oftentimes either, these are not the brightest and most intelligent people. Okay, a guy who can throw a, a football across a field or catch a football across a field or who's a great linebacker or a cornerback or a defense, you know, offensive guard, whatever, you know, that, that's what they do. And they're good at that. And some sports players can be pretty bright people, but they don't get paid for their opinions. Okay, N you know, nobody should care what LeBron James thinks about politics. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, um, that'd be like having your gas station attendant tell you, uh, you know, what, what stocks to invest in. If they can, if they're that sharp at investment, they're not going to be working at a, a gas station. Okay. So the point is, <clears throat> you know, that, that, that's the, anyway. So yeah, Megan Rackmano is there and, and she shoots her mouth off and whatever, but the rest of the women's team, there are some great players there. They're just playing. I always root for team USA internationally, you know, USA rules. We're, we're the best. So I, you know, team USA, Ole! Let's let's go. Let's win. Uh, just had a great game. Uh, they they won uh, their first game, and now uh, they just tied against the Netherlands tonight, which is why it's kind of on my mind. Uh, great game. Uh, sad to see uh, Van de Donk get hurt a uh, little bit there, but she seemed no worse for wear. Kind of got back on her feet there, and and there was a, there was pretty aggressive. A lot of tackles. A lot of people get knocked down. The Dutch are known for being pretty aggressive. Uh, our ladies are pretty aggressive too, and, and they managed to tie the game up. They would have won, except that one of the goals, unfortunately, was offsides. That happens. Anyway, uh, some great playing there by 
our wonderful ladies in uh, in uniform, if you will, albeit soccer uniform. Uh, excellent, excellent game. And I look forward to seeing more from our world champ ladies on the women's national team. So uh, you go, girls. Go get it. Uh, our, our ladies, our women's national team, excellent players. And uh, looking forward to another big win there. Okay. More Biden corruption evidence. The, the 1023 form is now out. Um, we have uh, just, I mean, it, it's, it's, there's so much stuff coming out now. We have all kinds of whistleblowers, all kinds of solid sources. It is looking increasingly plausible that the, uh, the CEO of Burisma bribed the Bidens for $10 million, $5 million each to, um, get that prosecutor fired that we all we all heard about and they they did so well that uh you know that's expensive but it's proof of bribery just like the russian oligarchs paid big money to biden uh those oligarchs continue not to be on the sanctions list we've sanctioned most of the russian oligarchs most of their wealthy powerful people in that circle that is friendly with vladimir putin um but we have uh kept a couple people off of that sanctions list um, because of course they gave some bucks to the big guy all right it's a mess like, i don't even want to talk about it it's so horrendous the idea that the president of the united states could be bought uh, even even while serving as vice president that the vice president of the united states could be bought and the the thing is i mean we had an impeachment of donald trump for the suggestion, the incorrect suggestion that somehow he was trying to create a quid, quid pro quo with Ukraine to investigate Biden, right? He was asking the Ukrainians to investigate. Now, if Biden had been, you know, squeaky clean, it wouldn't have mattered what they investigated. They wouldn't have found anything, right? But everyone knows that that wasn't the case. And so they didn't want that to happen. And they tried to use that to impeach him. But it's like, you know, if, uh, if Donald Trump Jr., got a $5 transfer from one of the Russian oligarchs and, uh, and, and didn't notice it in his bank. Didn't, didn't immediately like return it or whatever. I guarantee you, we'd all hear about it. $5, you know, the end of the world, but <clears throat> the Bidens can get 5 million each and, uh, you know, and, and it's becoming increasingly, um, apparent that Biden was involved, that he was in phone conversations, and some of these conversations may have been recorded. So there's a good chance evidence will come forward. Of course, the FBI has no intention of investigating it. So since the FBI will not investigate it, I have no reason to assume uh, otherwise than to say that, as far as I know, the, the allegations seem to be true until someone can investigate and show otherwise. Uh, but since they have no plans to investigate, I guess we're never going to know. Anyway, if you're interested in more information about that, of course, The Verdict with Ted Cruz is an excellent podcast, excellent news show uh, that uh, Ted, Ted is great at explaining all of these things. So please do go there and get that information. More phony charges against Trump, supposedly election interference from January 9th. They, they keep trying to come around to that, this whole you know insurrection nonsense or election interference, something. They want to get something out of it. And there's nothing there. Nothing happened of consequence, um, and they don't, you know, they got, they got nothing. So they, uh, you know, they know they, there's a good chance they can't beat Donald Trump in the election, so they're trying to sully his name with all these charges and whatever. I don't think anyone cares. I think everyone knows the game at this point. So I don't think they're winning themselves any points. 
There are some polls out there now that show Trump in the lead. For the last six months or so, they've been pretty neck and neck. Some of them have been tied. Some of the polls have come out with Biden in the lead, but by, you know, two or three points. There are a few outliers that are like Biden by five and that kind of thing. Recently, we've had a Trump by five from Harvard Harris. Harvard Harris is definitely not the most right wing pollster. Uh, and uh, we've had a couple of others where Trump has been ahead uh, and, you know, one with Biden ahead by two points. I mean, you know, you can't get everything. But uh, in, in any case, you know, at the very least, they're they're neck and neck and both candidates are plausible winners of the presidential election. So, you know, there you go. All right. Diving into Israeli news. Uh, so Israel has been rocked by protests over these judicial reforms. And I've, I've described everything in past episodes, so I don't want to bore everyone who's been keeping up with those episodes and punish you guys with a recap. Uh, but there are new listeners coming to the show every day, and so I have to, um, I, I have to take some time in order to go back and explain kind of where we're at. So in the last election, the, the right-wing parties won. Israel had five elections. There were four of them that were inconclusive. And in the fifth, the right won. It's Bibi Netanyahu and all of his friends and allies, right? Okay, so Bibi wins, and uh, a lot of the right-wing parties ran on this platform of judicial reform. The courts have been interfering with right-wing parties making policy in Israel, most of that well, on the reasonableness standard, which I'll talk about in a minute. And uh, after the election, it was very important to the coalition, to the, the right-wing coalition that formed that they push back against this. And the way they wanted to push back was creating an override where the Knesset, the, the legislature, legislative slash electoral body, because it is a parliament, where they could overturn the uh, decisions of the Supreme Court. And as I told you, I, I always tell you guys my opinions and my thoughts on things because I, um, I want you to be able to filter out any bias. You know, when I was younger in younger years, um, you know, there was, you know, high school era, uh, going to college. Uh, I toyed around with a lot of constitutional reform ideas. And one of them was the idea of the, the Congress being able to override the Supreme Court. And so my friends and I discussed that back and forth. And I wrote a few things about it. And as I thought about it, it was like, you know, it, it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea because the, the, the purpose of a Supreme Court is to establish the law. And if anyone could just override them, that would be wrong. They just, um, you know, Congress would just run amok, right? They could do whatever they wanted. Just imagine if after this Dobbs decision that just came up, if the Congress had voted, even if it required a two-thirds vote of each house, uh, they could have voted to overturn it and restored Roe v. Wade. We don't want that, okay? Uh, so that's a bad idea. And uh, that that idea failed. It, it, it was so much protest, and there were a number of uh, members of the Likud party, uh, Bibi's own party, who weren't going to support it. And so... With all of the protests and everything, uh, of course, that one went by the wayside. And then came uh, a new reform. This new reform that came out after Passover is pitched called the reasonableness reform. The Supreme Court has been using a particular legal standard to interfere in political decisions because they say, uh, you know, there's a reasonableness standard. Uh, was this decision reasonable? And so they test it against the question of reasonableness. And they use that to strike down a lot of government decisions and a lot of laws. They do this by arguing that, that Israel's basic law is a constitution. Again, I've covered all this. I know I'm, I'm trying to get through it quickly. 
Um, the, the basic law is not a constitution. It can be amended any time by the Knesset, by a majority of the Knesset, and it just was. That's what this was. This was an amendment to the basic law. Come back to all that in a minute. So this reasonableness standard, by taking that away, this bill says that the court can no longer use that standard to uh, strike down laws, right? Uh, this is a much more moderate reform than what was originally protested and uh, proposed and, and uh, what the protesters were definitely against. Also, there was a, a plan to reform the selection committee. Israeli uh, judges are not appointed by the prime minister or by uh, political committee. They're appointed by a committee that is supposed to be objective. It has nine members, four representatives from the Knesset, two cabinet ministers, and uh, two members of the Knesset, at least one of whom is from the opposition. So there are three representatives of the sitting coalition, one from the opposition. Then the other five are from, you know, three Supreme Court justices uh, and uh, two members of the Bar Association, which is supposed to be an impartial observer and, and an impartial party. And as, as I've said before, in my opinion, Bar Associations are not impartial and should not be considered impartial and should not be sitting on selection committees that propose judges here in the United States or in Israel. So um, that that's just a bad thing. Anyway, um, so... The, the reasonableness bill will push back against the reasonableness standard. There is a bill now to strip the Bar Association of all of its legal privileges, including its seats on the selection bill. If that bill passes, and there's a great likelihood that it will, then the selection committee will only have seven seats, and that'll be three representatives of the government, three representatives of the Supreme Court, and one member of the opposition, which uh, I think would work fine. That would actually balance things out. The, the government itself would not have the power to appoint any judge alone. Meanwhile, uh, the justices wouldn't have the power to appoint someone on their own. Uh, and the opposition could join one or the other, or you'd have a group of them. So if, if the government and judges agree that a um, the governing coalition in, in parliamentary parlance, we call that the government. It, it's very different from the U.S. <laughs> um Anyway, the governing coalition uh, has three members. The court has three members. The opposition is the, would be the seventh member. And then, you know, it, when any of those two agree, the judges, all three judges and an opposition member, uh, all three from the government and one judge, then they could appoint uh, judges to the lower courts. The Supreme Court requires uh, a higher margin, so that would require an extra vote. And so you'd have to get more support for that. But that works. I mean, I think that would I think that would do all of the, the reform that's that's requested here. And there have been protests, thousands of people out demonstrating mostly I hate to use terms like mostly peaceful. Most of the protests have been peaceful. <coughs> Some have been disruptive, such as blocking the highway. And there has been instances of riots. Everyone's played up the riots. A handful of people get out of control, start throwing bottles and stuff. Uh, those people get arrested. That, that's called rioting. A protest is where you go out and you, you stand in a street square or something like that and you shout. And you, you, you gather in large numbers and tell the politicians, we don't like the job you're doing. We think you should do something else. And the politicians can choose to listen or ignore you. And with the consequences that follow, maybe that brings on early elections. Maybe nobody cares. I mean, maybe who, those people standing in the square are a minority and they're the only people who, who care about the issue. In any case, um, 
So there have been these these protests. There's been a little bit of violence. Uh, not serious. Israel is a modern democracy. It will continue to be a modern democracy after this. You know, but anyway, we get... Um, we get a lot of dangerous rhetoric and we've had a lot of, uh, you know, people on, on the left out protesting, being very passionate and, and energetic, but we've also had some, some dangerous rhetoric and top of our list of dangerous rhetoric is Ehud Olmert, the former prime minister, uh, who was prime minister before BB took office back in 2009. He was prime minister from 2005 until 2009. Um, he took over for Ariel Sharon, Arik, when Arik had his stroke, a black day for Israel, definitely a dark day, uh, not a good thing. Uh, but, um, on that dark day, uh, the, the, one of the darkest points was that this guy Ehud Olmert took over for the great Ariel Sharon. So Sharon, you know, was a great leader and Ehud Olmert was absolutely, uh, everything Ariel Sharon was not, um, it, you know, he was not a good leader. He was not a competent politician. He was corrupt. Sharon wasn't corrupt. I mean, so you have all these things. Anyway, Sharon, uh, Olmert was charged with corruption and, and, uh, uh, spent a brief stint in prison for it, uh, Anyway, now he's out saying that because of the passage of this reasonableness bill, there might be a civil war. Seriously? Really? There is no danger of a civil war in Israel. If the lefties want to get violent, the police will put down that violence. They will not put down the protests, but violent people will be, you know, they will respond in, in, in kind, respond with force. Uh, you know, preferably with batons and, and plastic shields. But, I mean, if people go out and start shooting, you know, people who are shooting at police officers are going to get shot. That's just kind of how that works. Um, anyway, uh, hopefully it won't escalate to that. But, you know, guys like Olmert running around saying things, you know, asinine, psychotic, dangerous things like this, it's not helpful. Um, so that, that's a call out to Ehud Olmert for being... Uh, <laughs> for being a schloff, actually, <laughs> he's uh, he's being he's being uh, an idiot out there doing this stuff. So he needs to tone it down. Those of you who've been listening to the podcast for some time will know that I also called out excessive right wing, dangerous right wing rhetoric. Uh, I, I made reference to the dangerous right wing rhetoric in back in the 90s that led to the assassination of or contributed to the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. I also um, called out right-wing people during the, uh, the change block government. You know, if you, if you've been following the podcast back in the earlier episodes, when the change block government was in office and uh, Naftali Bennett was prime minister, right before this last election, it is conglomeration of the eight political parties in the far right and the far left. There was all kinds of, of dangerous rhetoric coming out of the right, talking about how this government was going to, you know, surrender Israel and, and they were, they were pro-terrorist and all this kind of thing. And, uh, I warned that that was going too far. So I called that out as well. So fair and impartial. I'm calling out the left for dangerous rhetoric. I called out the right for dangerous rhetoric. Uh, when people are, are saying things that I consider to be dangerous, when they're going too far, right and left, I will call it out. And uh, that, that way, you, you who listen to Inside Israel News know you're always getting an honest take. Also, uh, the day after the bill passed, uh, someone bought the front page ad on a bunch of newspapers in Israel and covered them with black ink saying it's a dark day for Israel. Uh, 
And so, you know, in one of the, the groups that I'm in, a uh, conservative Jewish group, uh, people were saying, you know, would, could you imagine if this happened here in the U.S., how stupid that would be? And, you know, I mean, nobody reads the newspaper here anymore anyway. I don't know that anyone really looks at them in Israel. Mostly it just means that the magazine stands and newspaper stands at, at the corner stores had all these black covered magazines on them. Uh, and I joked with them. I said, well, we, we know when we're going to see this in the United States, the day after Donald Trump is elected to his second term. Then we're going to see newspapers in the U.S. covered in black and everybody knows. <laughs> it'll get just that. It'll be nuts here, too. Uh, so that's that's stupid. And we get rhetoric from the protesters saying um, that, uh, God, it's unbelievable to hear this kind of crap, that uh, Netanyahu is Israel's Putin. Uh, you know, again, where we hear stupid stuff like this, it, what, what level of intelligence do you have to have? You know, how, how absolutely, well, I, I shouldn't say it, because unfortunately a lot of these people on the left are, you know, on paper intelligent people, but they're psychotic, like they're delusional. They, they live in a fantasy world. If, if Bibi Netanyahu were Vladimir Putin, then the opposition leaders Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid would be dead or in prison. Uh, and they'd have to watch out for what tea they drink and uh, stay away from windows. If uh, he were Vladimir Putin, there would be no free speech in Israel. No one would be allowed to challenge him. All right. You have thousands of protesters going out on the streets to protest in Israel. In Russia, if you post that you're going to protest against the Ukraine war, they will come to your house and arrest you before you can even leave to the protest and arrest anyone else who says they're going along with you. Right. So you'll be arrested before you protest. But I guarantee you grab it in a, a Ukrainian flag, go down to Red Square and, and wave it around. And I, I with a matter of minutes, if it even takes that long, you will be arrested. OK, and it won't be a pleasant arrest. They, they will look for every excuse to give you bruises and injuries in the process. So, uh, you know, in the recent protest, the day that the bill was passed, 17 protesters were arrested. Right. Uh, including one of the protest leaders. If Vladimir, if, if Netanyahu were Vladimir Putin, there would have been 1,700 people arrested and, uh, you know, hundreds of people killed for daring to challenge the regime, okay? Let's not even go there. I mean, it's so stupid. It's ridiculous. Bibi Netanyahu is the prime minister of Israel because he was elected. Vladimir Putin was never elected. He was appointed by uh, Yeltsin. Uh, Yeltsin wanted a strong man to follow him. He succeeded to office. Uh, the The opposition really never had a shot. They, they had no organized opposition, really. And he kind of won the first election in 2000 by default. Nobody knew anything about him. By 2004, he had all the elections rigged. There, there was no way anyone could could beat him. And he's won, you know, every election since. He played this game. The Russian Constitution said that no president could serve more than two consecutive terms. So he served two terms and had Medvedev serve as president for four years while he was prime minister. He was still in power. Everyone knew it. Uh, and then he ran for president again in 2012 and has been president ever since. They've since amended their constitution to get rid of the farce. Now he can be president as many times as he wants. Anyway, this is just stupid. Let's get back to the reform now. They passed a bill saying the court cannot use this reasonableness form uh, uh, standard, right? But the courts can push back in so many ways, right? This is a checks and balances thing. The court has checks, right? So one thing they could do is try to strike down this law. Now, that would be kind of legally challenging for them. Uh, and, and here's how and why. So the 
um, if, if your argument is that the basic law is a constitution and that the court can use that constitution and the framework of like British common law, which Israel inherited from the British mandate of Palestine, um, if, if they can use that as an excuse to say that's a constitution, therefore we can strike down laws that are unconstitutional, in quotation marks, kind of like we do here in the U.S. But in the U.S. we have a real constitution, right? So recently, you know, when the, we, we have the, the government contacting Twitter, Facebook, and these social media outlets and asking them to censor speech, and the court blocks that. The court says, you know, the ju a judge issued a, an order saying you cannot be in contact. If you work for the government, you cannot contact social media outlets and ask them to censor speech. That's illegal, okay? Because we have a constitution, the First Amendment says freedom of speech and expression is, is protected. I say and expression because that's how the courts describe it. Obviously, expression is not in the First Amendment, in the freedom of speech, but we understand what it means. In any case, if the court tries to strike down the reasonableness law, they'll be weakening themselves for the future because they're saying that the basic law is not a constitution, right? The Supreme Court of the United States cannot strike down the 27th Amendment, right? The, the 27th Amendment was the last amendment added to the Constitution. It was one of the 12 that were proposed by James Madison in the first Congress, written by James Madison and, and proposed by the first Congress. And it just says that basically Congress can't raise their, their wages, they can't change their compensation until an election of uh, the House of Representatives has passed. So if Congress passed a bill right now saying our pay is going to go up, um, you know, we're going we're to double our pay, right? Man, that'd be great for Congress, but it wouldn't be able to go into effect until January of 2025 because you have to have an election of the House of Representatives in between, right? <clears throat> the Supreme Court cannot decide, even if they decided 9-0, they cannot decide that that amendment doesn't exist, that it's unconstitutional, because it is part of the Constitution. It was ratified to the Constitution, right? Nor, nor can they strike down the Second Amendment, right? And courts have generally, when they don't like an amendment, they've minimized its impact, right? So, you know, for a long time, the Supreme Court didn't take any cases on gun rights, uh, but there was this fear that they might say, oh, yeah, you know, an assault rifle ban is OK or certain limitations are OK. And that way they're not, you know, they're not saying you don't have a right to bear arms. They're just saying, well, you know, you can have a waiting period. And, you know, you know what I'm saying? They, they minimize the, the effect of the amendment. Uh, so that's that's one way that you could try to, to go about it. So the courts can push back. They probably won't strike down the reasonableness law, and I don't think they need to. They can enforce the law. There are other legal principles. There are other legal ideas. There are other approaches. One of the issues, for example, is the leader of the Shas party, which is one of the is the the Sephardic or Orthodox party, one of the Haredi parties. I talking about. Israel has two religious parties. One represents the Middle Eastern Jewish tradition, the Sephardim. This is Shas, and one represents the Ashkenazic European Jewish tradition, and that's uh, United Torah Judaism. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so the leader of the Shas party, Ari Derry, was convicted on tax fraud and financial fraud and various things. He's he's a convicted felon, therefore he's not allowed to serve as a cabinet minister. But he's a very important political leader, and his party brings a lot of votes—eleven votes, which is you know <laughs> one tenth of the the coalition, right? and one-fifth of the Knesset. So um, he, he's a very powerful figure. 
And uh, someone else from his party is serving uh, in his cabinet post that, that he wanted to be uh, Minister of Interior. They have someone else there because the court struck down him serving as a cabinet minister on the grounds of reasonableness. It's not a question of reasonableness. There is a law in Israel that if you are a convicted felon, you cannot serve as a cabinet minister. So just enforce the law. It's not a question of reasonableness. It's a question of the law, right? So the courts can push back. They can find other standards. They can find other reasons to strike down laws or decisions if the court were being circumspect, okay? Um, there is a point where courts should pay attention. Now, I'm no fan of the New Deal, but Roosevelt was pushing all these New Deal ideas and, and the courts kept striking them down and saying they were unconstitutional. And in 1937, uh, FDR threatened to pack the court. He had the votes in Congress. He could pass a bill adding seats to the Supreme Court and he could put in judges of his own picking, his own choosing, uh, and then the court would be packed. And uh, to, to prevent that, one justice started voting to allow some of the New Deal bills to pass to some of them to be considered constitutional and then you know someone leaving the court uh opened a seat that roosevelt was able to fill and, and he had control of it there's a point where the court has to recognize that whatever you think is unconstitutional you can't go against the public will and create reasons for the the public to go against the court so if i were the supreme court of israel i would take a moment to reflect and think about what has happened here and think about all the protests and think about things. So, you know, the best way forward is to give the government no further reason to oppose the Supreme Court. And I'm not saying that the Supreme Court should just back down, roll over and play dead. Just stop interfering in obviously political ways. Right. You know, striking down. Uh, there was a, there was a compromise that was reached with the uh, Orthodox over military service years ago. And they struck it down saying, well, it's unreasonable. It's unreasonable. Stop it. Let the government implement right-wing policies as long as they are not illegal. And then everyone will be happy. The right won the election. Israel has a sovereign parliament, which means that the parliament can pass any law they want. They can change the constitution, the basic law, basically. right? They can do anything they want. That is the structure of the Israeli system. Let it go. Okay, so that's, you know, that's, that's the issue there. I really think the courts should just take a minute, think this through and go forward without interfering as much in politics and focusing more on legal principles and enforcing law. That's just me. my opinion. But, you know, I'm just a lawnsman. Nobody listens to me. <laughs> so even though, you know, I talk about a lot of issues that become news stories in the weeks that follow. Um, I, I'm way ahead of the curve on a lot of stuff. You come here, you guys who are listeners, come here and listen so that you know what's not only what's happening now, but what's likely to happen. And, and we'll see with this. I think the court will find ways to push back, and I, I hope that they will also be lightly chastised. A little slap on the wrist. Just, you know, like I said, don't give the government any reason to push for more reforms. If the courts chill out like that and this this bar association bill passes the reforms are done it's it's over the, the the government can can take its pound of flesh and say hey we won an election we told people we were going to reform the we we did it and then go on to other issues and the whole country will just yawn and get on with life it's all so hard it's nonsense um as i've said before uh you know demographically the left doesn't have as many children as the right does 
And so more and more people are voting right. It's a funny thing. You know, it's a numbers thing. And so now left people are all upset in, in the words of, of uh, Gen Z, butthurt, <laughs> as they would say. Uh, they, they're getting butthurt. You know, that's the period T, no cap. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Gen Z, you know, bet. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll see what goes forward from here. I think the courts will find ways to push back. I don't think these are going to do any damage to Israel. In the long run, people are going to yawn and move on. Uh, the left, if, if anything has come out of this, it's that the left's power is broken. They threatened strikes. They protested. They rioted. They did everything they could. They, you know, 1,100 Air Force Reserve pilots, uh, 1,100 re Israeli reservists, including hundreds of reserve pilots threatened not to, con you know, to serve if called upon, you know, it, it, it's, it's silly. You know, these protests, they, they've taken it to the point where, you know, we have military insubordination, but it's over now. Okay. You know, it's done. It's time to move on. <laughs> so, uh, hopefully things will, will chill out. I don't think the left will chill out, but I mean, they've lost. If, if, Yair Lapid, one of the leaders of the opposition, Benny Gantz, if you don't like the reforms, if you don't like the government, win an election, okay? You guys ran against BB and, and the right, and you lost. So go win an election, right? When the voters think, that, you know, when you give the voters reason to think that you can do a better job for BB than BB for them, do a better job for the people than BB Netanyahu does, and they elect you to office, you'll make your own reform. So if this is all, you know, a big disaster, you know, a, a big balagan, as we say in Hebrew, a big mess, you know, a huge mess or disaster. If it's a terrible convulsion, a gavalt, as we often say, oi, gavalt. Uh, if it's a big, if it's a big convulsion, if it's a big disaster, it's a big mess, a balagan for the uh, government, then that should just mean that new elections will be coming on soon and the left will have a shot to win again. Um, and that really is the last thing I want to say here is, Big reforms are, um, when you get them passed, there's that moment of satisfaction. Like, yeah, we, we did it. But you got to think about, you know, now you have to implement them. So, you know, they, they got Obamacare through in 2010 by the skin of its teeth. Uh, you know, the, the, it was a special election in, in Massachusetts. And, you know, we got rid of, they got rid of the, you know, the Republicans won there and it, it took away the 60 seat majority the Democrats had in the Senate. And they claimed that they'd already done the procedural vote, all that stuff. They barely got that bill passed. And the implementation of it in 2013 and 2014 was such a disaster that the Republicans broadened their majorities in both houses in 2014. So a lot of times these things blow up in your face. They have a tendency to backfire. So. From the left, comfort yourself with the knowledge that now that this has passed, if it's a total balagan, if it's a total disaster and a big mess, BB's going to answer for that, okay, before the voters. If, on the other hand, it's fine, get on with life. And maybe someday in the future when the left is in power, they can change the law. That's how it works. I mean, that's, that's how democracy works. This is not the end of democracy in Israel. You know, I had somebody, you know, talking about, you know, this could jeopardize, my friends messaged me, this could jeopardize democracy in Israel. Um, Avraham, you know who you are. <laughs> I'm calling you out, buddy. Anyway, good friend of mine and, and no, uh, no offense. But, you know, this, I know, shared an article with me about this, you know, this threat to democracy. And I'm like, BB won the last election. Did I miss something? 
<laughs> there was an election. Like, so I, I hit it. I, I, I didn't, I, I don't think I responded, but I'm like, I want to say, look, is there freedom of speech in Israel? Yes. Is there freedom of the press in Israel? Yes. Is there freedom of religion in Israel? Yes. Did they have free elections, fair elections? Yes. Well, if that's the case, then BB one fair and square. And this is democracy. Democracy at work, your democracy at work. People have their say, and the protesters want a big victory. The government could have tried to shove through the override. It didn't happen that way, right? They had to moderate their reform. That's how democracy works. You protest, you make a lot of noise, and sometimes people listen. Okay? So with that, <laughs> it'll be the end of this segment, and I'll come back and talk about uh, Ukraine and China and uh, we'll go from there. After a day of recording uh, these podcasts, I really enjoy having a good cigar. I love the cigar lifestyle, going to cigar lounges and meeting interesting people to talk to. It, it really is an interesting lifestyle and I enjoy my uh, various scotches, whiskeys and, and other uh, interesting drinks that I, I find along the way. If you're interested in lifestyle and uh, especially uh, the lifestyle surrounding cigars, there is nothing better than the Cigar Aficionado magazine. Uh, they have a subscription. You can get four issues a year. I love getting my Cigar Aficionado. I immediately take it out, look through it. Uh, love the ads. You know, it's funny. I, nobody, nobody likes the ads, but I like the ads. It's always interesting to see what's in there. And they rate cigars, and I always find some really great cigars to go look at and uh, get a good smoke. So sign up for... Uh, Cigar Aficionado, subscribe and uh, get your issue today. Now it's time to talk about Ukraine, goings on over there in the Ukraine war. The counteroffensive continues. Uh, as I've talked about before, there are a lot of mines and prepared defenses. Um, and so it's, it's going slowly. However, it is going successfully. Uh, Ukraine has cut off, almost cut off Bakhmut, and they've almost taken that city back. Uh, not very strategic city, but the Russians spent a lot of time in their propaganda and, and uh, spent a lot of precious rhetoric and words and hot air on uh, Bakhmut, even though it's not a strategically important location. And Ukraine has very nearly recovered it. <clears throat> Once they have Bakhmut, they can start moving, uh, you know, east and southeast so that they can cut off Donetsk. And that would, um, you know, that would uh, be a much bigger strategic loss for the Russians. Right, that's their northernmost push. Uh, another push a little bit to the south of that, kind of at the corner of the line, headed toward uh, Mariupol. Slow going, but they're making progress there as well. That threatens a major encirclement of Russian forces with the Kirsch Bridge destroyed, <laughs> attacked once again. Those darn Ukrainians, they just keep getting these things. So the, the Kirsch Bridge is what connects uh, Crimea to mainland Russia. And um, they attacked it at the, at the time when there was the least traffic on it and uh, avoided casualties as best they could. But they damaged the bridge again, and uh, it's no longer passable. Second time that bridge has been damaged. Anyway, um, so Ukraine is, is headed toward um, uh, Mariupol. If they get Mariupol, they cut off Zaporizhia and Kherson from, uh, con you know, from land contact, contiguous land contact with Russia. Right. And the same thing is happening a little south of that over by Zaporizhia, headed in the direction of Melitopol, 
uh, which uh, is yet another place that they could cut off the Kherson area and um, thus Crimea as well from uh, resupply and contact, you know, contiguous geographic contact with the uh, with Russian forces. So <clears throat> there you have it. Those are the three main prongs. They are going. It's slow going, but it's fine. This thing about cluster bombs, the Russians have been employing cluster bombs all over the place. Uh, Ukraine now has them, and they've, uh, there's video that shows the Ukrainians using them, and with great effect. Good for Ukraine. I have no moral qualms about this whatsoever. Um, the big issue with them is that there's a failure rate of some of the munitions, and so they, they remain behind, and they can be stepped on and, and explode later on. So they're a hazard to uh, people after the fact. And uh, this is the case with mines. And after the Novokhovka Dam was destroyed, uh, mines have been washed all over God knows where. So, I mean, there are going to be mines all over Ukraine. We're going to spend the next century finding mines and cluster munitions there. But the failure rate is much higher with Russian, low-quality Russian cluster bombs, right? There's something like less than a 1% failure rate for Western uh, cluster munitions, which means that we'll be leaving less stuff behind anyway. And they can use it to whack Russians and win this war. Uh, the Russians invaded Ukraine. That is unprovoked invasion. Uh, there's there's no moral leg to stand on for Russia. Um, you know, sorry people. There's there's just no way to no way to defend their cause. Um, and the the way the Russians are committing mass murder and using weapons of mass destruction like dams, blowing up dams. Uh, this is this is getting asinine. So look forward to Russia's defeat, imminent defeat. Speaking of which, Russia is on the brink. Their uh, central bank's interest rate is through the roof and rising rapidly. Uh, their banking system is on the verge of collapse. They're running out of money. Uh, the recent coup slash mutiny, as people are calling it a coup, it wasn't a coup really. It was mostly a mutiny by uh, Evgeny Prigozhin from the Wagner Group. Um, that has upset a lot of it has shown that Putin is a paper tiger and that he's vulnerable and it's upset a lot of people and it has upset the delusion that everything is fine. You know, a lot of people in Russia have, have bought into this idea that the alternative to Putin is not a liberal democracy. It is chaos. That's the history of Russia. Russia either has a strong, solid um, man of steel, iron fist leader at its center, a Tsar or, you know, the Vojt, <laughs> Stalin, right? Someone like that at the center of things, or it's chaotic and weak and broken up into smaller parts, okay? So that's, that's the reality. So their fears may become a reality. Um, the Russian government is becoming increasingly delusional and increasingly desperate. You know, these lies going around that Poland wants to annex parts of Belarus and Ukraine that uh, Russia captured from them in 1939. So a lot of people don't know this, but, uh, you know, you can get educated here on Inside Israel News as well. Uh, in 1939, uh, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union became allies. They signed the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And they agreed to partition Poland. And uh, they'd also agreed that Russia would take over the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Uh, Poland had fought a war with the Soviet Union 
and very successfully in the 20s when they got their independence after from the Russian Empire after the First World War. So before the First World War, Poland was part of the Russian Empire. After the First World War, the Polish rose up and got their independence. They fought the Soviet Union, and they so defeated the Red Army that they captured extra territory in, you know, the, the Lviv area and uh, parts of what are now Belarus and, and Latvia. Uh, excuse me, Belarus and Lithuania, excuse me, uh, including the city of Vilnius, which is, you know, Vilnius is now the capital of uh, Lithuania. Anyway, so we could call that Greater Poland. In 1939, with the partition, Russia took that eastern territory back and uh, incorporated that into the Soviet republics of Belarus and Ukraine, and that's where they remain. There weren't a lot of ethnic Poles living there, but there were some, uh, and obviously the Soviets badly abused the Poles. They murdered Polish officers and soldiers who were POWs. The Germans found these, dug these up, and used it in 1942 to embarrass the Allies because they were, you know, the U.S. and Britain were allied to countries like the Soviet Union that committed such horrors. Anyway, after the Russian advance into Berlin... Poles drove, you know, Germans were fleeing East Prussia and the Poles, you know, a lot of Polish people and, you know, after the Red Army had come through, they just went and took over German estates and drove the Germans out from what is now Poland. And so the, the western part of Poland is what used to be Prussia and it's now Poland. So Poland got plenty of territory. They get, they get better land to the west than they would have gotten to the east. The Poles have no interest in getting that land back. They're just grateful you know, thanks to the revolutions of 1989, that they are no longer under the thumb of the Soviet Union, which no longer exists. So anyway, Poland doesn't have any designs. It's just another excuse to try to make NATO and the West look bad. <laughs> you know? um, if, uh, if Belarus were to attack Poland, Poland would get a big chunk of Belarus, if not the whole thing. But that's here and there. Anyway, uh, Poland is a NATO member, and that's, that's why this is happening. But don't believe this nonsense. No one in Poland... No Polish official has said anything about this, okay? It's only the Russians who are talking about this. All right. Here's an interesting thing that's come up, and I've talked a lot in past episodes about Russian propaganda and, and the efforts of the Russians to obfuscate. You know, there are secret weapons labs in Ukraine. Ukraine's a neo-Nazi state. We've we got pictures of Russian soldiers and, and Wagner mercenaries dressed up as Nazis with swastikas. You know, the, the tattoos on these people have been positively identified as the tattoos worn by Russian soldiers. Like, those, sold, those pictures are fake. Like, if you don't know that, you need to know. You know, those pictures are fake. Anyway, we've had all this propaganda, stupid stuff from the, the Russians. Ukraine is such a neo-Nazi state, they have a Jewish president. I, I mean, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, you know? It's, whew. Anyway. Um, th that would be like saying, you know, if, if, uh, if Albert Einstein were the president of Germany in 1939, that then, then you'd say Germany is anti-Semitic. Uh, no, that wouldn't have been the case. Uh, obviously, Germany was. But my, my point being, this is stupid. Absolutely asinine. But uh, the Russians will put this stuff out there because they want people to believe it. And people in the West will believe it. You know, some people here are eager to hear about labs and they're tired of conspiracy theories. And there were really were labs in Wuhan that the U.S. was partially financing that were engaged in gain of function research on COVID. And so we, we really do have some shenanigans going on with diseases. Um, I still don't think the release of the disease was intentional or anything like that. I just think, you know, we were funding the research in the lab. Somehow the disease got loose. Uh, the Chinese are, you know, not as careful as we are. Um, and that's how that got out. But anyway, 
they'll they'll tell you whatever they want you you know whatever you'll take whatever you believe you know Poland's corrupt I mean it's like look if you believe that then then why not propaganda about the Holocaust I mean you know the, the Jews were corrupt there was a giant Zionist conspiracy so they had to kill the Jews I mean you know some people will believe anything unfortunately anyway um, but there's some very good reasons now why the West has to win I want to make a quick example and a quick aside in 2003, Bush came up with this idea to invade Iraq. I thought it was a bad idea. I thought it was a stupid idea. I thought it was a ridiculous idea. And I was one of those college students, I was a college student, who went out and protested. I was against the war all the way to the hilt. Stupid idea. About a third of Americans uh, agreed and were against the war for various reasons. But two-thirds of the country, after the whole war on terror thing had begun, thought that... Uh, some, you know, they'd been given the impression that somehow this was tied to the war on terror. And so they were OK with it. And it, it was a disaster right away. Like they had no plan. They, they couldn't quite pull it off. They finally got Saddam out and then the insurgency began and it just it, it, the whole thing was a mess. And thanks to the Iraq war, Iran is now a great power in the Middle East. <clears throat> right. And, uh, you know, that's that's the disaster that has resulted from that policy. Anyway, once the war started, my position changed. And uh, that's when I got alienated from the anti-war people because they wanted us just to withdraw from Iraq. And I understand history. If you lose a war, you, you, it creates more war. If we had left Iraq and just turned tail and ran, we'd be showing Al-Qaeda and, and those terror groups and the Iranians that if they push us a little, we'll just run. Right. We'll run from battle. And they'd be they'd have taken everything. They, they've taken the full mile, right? The whole nine yards. They'd have the whole thing, okay? So don't, um, uh, you know, you, you can't play that game. So once we were in the war, we had to win it or come out of it somehow. And it didn't work out very well, but we did get out reasonably um, in any case. Right now, whether you agree with us helping Ukraine or not, the Russians engaged in an act of aggression, Ukraine is no threat to Russia. The Russians launched an unprovoked invasion. They are committing mass murder against the Ukrainians, right? They're blowing up apartment buildings. They're burying people, men, women, and children in mass graves. It is murder. They are attacking the civilian population. They want to destroy Ukraine. They're trying to destroy their economy. They are willing to starve people in the, in the global south, in Africa, uh, by preventing grain shipments out of Ukraine. They're blowing up grain uh, silos in uh, in Odessa, they blew one up that was 200 yards, 200 meters, right? 200 yards from the Romanian border. That's 200 meters from Article 5 of the NATO alliance, right? From World War III, so to speak, which would take about five minutes and result in an absolute total disaster for the Russians. If they think fighting Ukraine is hard, you should try fighting people with stealth fighters and air supremacy, which we would have. Like, we, we would have it the instant the war began. The Russian Air Force would be gone in a matter of, of minutes. So it'd be just kind of a routine battle there. Um, kind of like it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be more fun than a video game <laughs> for our fighter pilots. Anyway, now the West is helping Ukraine. We are showing our resolve by defending Ukraine. And we sent in a bunch of Western weapons, Western tanks, missiles, technology, Patriot missile batteries. Okay. If somehow Russia were able to win now, what would that say? Right. If we were to abandon our allies, if we were to back out of it now, what would it say? That when you push on the West hard enough, even when Russia's lost the war, they'll end up winning because we're a bunch of pansies. Right. We're, we're just going to be like, oh, God, <laughs> take it anywhere we're going to run. That's why I think it's, it's funny. Now, suddenly people on the right 
have switched with people on the left. When I was in college, you know, I was out there with the green and blue haired people and uh, protesting the war. And then I, I switched back over because we had to win the war. Right now, it's people on the right who are with the green and purple hair out there. America's bad. Wow. Um, I understand that this, you know, I aim this, I target this podcast at a right wing audience, and I don't mean to pick it on people, but don't buy into this game. If this war is lost now, it means that our technology doesn't work. It means that Russia has, you know, a stronger will than we have, and it means that we're weak, extremely weak, and they will press that. Now, somebody once asked me, would I send my sons, I have five sons, would I send my sons to fight in Ukraine if they wanted to volunteer, if they were old enough, my oldest son is a teenager still, so um, then I would suggest they volunteer behind the lines, you know, helping out in hospitals or in logistics, but if they want to fight, I guess they want to fight. But nobody's asking that. We're not sending American troops to Ukraine. We're helping Ukrainians defend themselves from the Russian aggressor, Okay. If we lose this conflict, even now, then, you know, in a few years' time, when Putin's comfortable in, in, in Ukraine and China feels like they have the upper hand in the Pacific, uh, then we'll have World War III. That's what's, what, that's what's going to result. Uh, and then it'll be my sons, you know, and my daughter, my one daughter, you know, fighting and dying in the fields of Poland and out in the Pacific, defending our country once again from these dictators. The only way to contain them is to show force, is to show resolve, is to stop them before they have a chance to advance. So if Putin takes over Ukraine, if we, if we lose this, if we show weakness, then uh, you know, we lose. And it's just going to create the next war. The fastest path to World War III is a defeat in Ukraine. If, I mean, if we lose now, if we give up on Ukraine now, if we let Russia take over Ukraine, then we will have shown our, our hand. We'll have shown that we're a bunch of wimps and that if they push us, we'll, we'll just go cry. Okay. And Russia won't stop with Ukraine. They will go into Romania. They will go into Poland. Putin has said this many times. I mean, all these people that, you know, Hitler would go out and say, you know, the Jews are evil. We have to, and everybody in America, you know, Charles Lindbergh, Henry Ford, Margaret Sanger, all of the people who were apologists, that's the Planned Parenthood founder, Margaret Sanger, all of the people who were apologists for, for the Nazis over here, would, oh, that, he doesn't mean it, it's just rhetoric, he's just talking, he's, you know, he doesn't really mean he's going to kill the Jews, God, that's, you know, dude, that, that, something like that, uh, you know, this Hitler guy's not so bad, you know, it, it, it's the Jews and the communists, you know, Charles Lindbergh, right, you know, it's a conspiracy of the Zionists and the communists, you know, they're why people don't like Hitler, <sighs> no, people didn't like Hitler because he was an evil tyrant, an anti-Semite, and a psychotic, delusional whack job, okay, just like Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is all those things and, uh, and, and more, you know, you know, it's just not as successful as some of these other dictators in part because, you know, we, we learn lessons of history. And so we are fighting back the $41 billion of military aid. The U S has sent to Ukraine is some of the best defense spending we've spent <clears throat> in recent history. I mean, that's, that money has done more for the United States and our security and the security of Europe and the world than every penny we spent in Iraq, right? Uh, that's that's very, very, very important, right? Defending Ukraine, defeating Russia, neutralizes Russia as a threat to Europe and a threat to the West. And uh, it has other benefits, which I'm about to talk about in the next segment here. 
My friends, if you are interested in American history, political philosophy, uh, and life skills, uh, I encourage you to go check out The Isaac Kite Show, my other podcast, where Lord Isaac, your Earl of Excellence, gives uh, interesting advice, talks about uh, history, uh, tells stories about uh, various American battles in American history. I've, I've also talked a lot about liberty and how uh, the concept of liberty developed and how America was founded. And I'll be continuing in that thread uh, in the future. So if you're interested in learning about that, go check out The Isaac Kite Show. It is available on Spotify. Not yet available on Apple Podcasts, uh, but you can, you can find it on Spotify and uh, you can check it out there. So I hope you will give it a listen. When I first started this podcast, um, I was going to focus in on news in the Middle East for the most part. You know, <clears throat> stay focused on Israel. Uh, I had increasing questions about, you know, European politics, and of course that ends up affecting Israel. Uh, and I made some forays into U.S. politics and a few things here and there. But over time, <clears throat> world news has become more relevant, and I have uh, delved into a lot of other stuff. So things like, you know, Spain just had another election, and the left will probably stay in office, but they didn't win a majority. Uh, the right won more seats, but they don't have the ability to form a coalition government. They're, they're below the majority. <clears throat> That kind of thing, right? It's not very important because Spain is basically a failed state in Europe now. Um, but it is, you know, it is news. So there you have it. Anyway, China is another area of the world where I haven't spent a lot of time talking and I want to do a little bit more. I've, I've started on China this year and, <clears throat> you know, I've talked about their demographic problems and how by the end of this decade, China's basically going to be kaput. Uh, China's headed for a big fall. So the big question is, will China... Uh, <clears throat> will China attack Taiwan, right? That's our big issue right now. In the South China Sea, there's some, you know, the nine dash line and all the contention about the artificial islands down there and territorial concern. Anyway, okay. So we've heard all that. In any case, um, that's something that, uh, that is a big problem. Well, um, <clears throat> they consider Taiwan to be part of China and there's been talk of their taking it. I, I talked a, a while back about war games that show that basically in most situations, the U.S. eventually wins against China in a war like that. The only way China wins is if the U.S. doesn't become involved. And um, <clears throat> they had one war scenario where basically China lost, but they were left in possession of uh, Taiwan. And that was, you know, basically victory in, in, in their war aims, right? Well, that likelihood has continued to decline. And um, the, main, the main reason that China's not likely to, ta to attack Taiwan is Ukraine. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that here. Um, adding to, to that thought, kind of, I need to build up on this, you know, what, what's the issue with China in the first place kind of thing. So it, it's a strange thing that when you look at history, no one has done more for China than the United States, right? We literally went to war with Ch Japan over China, right? We bombed Japan. We bombed it flat. I mean, firebombed their cities and dropped two nuclear weapons, two atomic bombs on Japan for China, right? China was the big winner there. You know, we were pushing the open door policy in China before that. And, 
keeping uh, other parties from taking over China. In any case, um, after the uh, the Second World War, Mao took over. We even, you know, Nixon reached out to Mao in the 70s and turned China to our side, turned China against the Soviet Union, which is a big strategic victory for the United States. In time, China opened up to trade and has grown wealthy and prosperous because of the United States, right? We created a system where the world's oceans are safe to travel. There's very little piracy. The U.S. Navy ensures that that other state actors behave themselves. You know, India doesn't seize vessels on the high seas. Uh, Japan doesn't seize vessels on the high seas. No one does. Why? Because of the United States. Right now, we even get a few pirates in Somalia and, and uh, in the Strait of Malacca and that kind of thing. But here and there. The point is, we created that system. We created the system of globalization and trade. And China benefited from it. We even, you know, made them our, our gave them most favored trade partner status and did a lot of things. We got them in the WTO. We gave China a lot of things. <clears throat> We've done more for them. And yet they're they're annoyed by us. They're antagonistic. Why? Listening to a recent uh, lecture by Stephen Kotkin, who uh, works at the um, Heritage Foundation, he's he's a really perspicacious thinker on Russia mostly, but he also thinks that you know China as well. And he points out that the Chinese communist system, like the Soviet system, it just can't tolerate competition. You you can't have alternative systems out there that people can look to and be like, well, that works better, right? Chinese people today, most of them work in, you know, unskilled labor. They produce the cheapest and lousiest chips in the world. They produce the the weakest products and anything that they produce that has any higher tech components in them or this more sophisticated or higher quality, they have to buy Western machinery and equipment and parts to maintain those things and Western skills, right? They have to have our people go over there and help do those things, right? A lot of Chinese people, they want to be able to do those intellectual things. They want to make the high-end, high-quality chips. They want to be programmers and developers of the best software. They want to be able to build and develop the best engineered things. If they want to do that, they need to move to Europe, India, or the United States, Southeast Asia, right? So um, there's no room for that in in the Chinese system. And they're aware of that. And that's been a source of contention between they and the government. In any case... The Chinese Communist Party cannot tolerate the existence of the United States, so they must be antagonistic, right? But they've also created for themselves a massive demographic problem. Uh, rapid urbanization, the one-child policy, and the um, in significant part because of the one-child policy, the idea that you want a boy and not a girl, right? I mean, if you have a daughter, then, you know, you have to... I mean, it's, it's not... All of the things that, that a Chinese family has, the name, their pride, their, um, their prosperity, their opportunities, all of that has to go down through a male heir in their cultural mindset. Uh, you know, a female heir just doesn't do any of those things for you. So that leads to a, a, a number of big demographic problems. So the, the Chinese are now the fastest aging population in the world, and their uh, population is going over 65 in large amounts. And uh, there's no economic model for how an economy can function like that. So um, as I've talked a lot about Peter Zion, you can go look at his stuff, and he talks in more depth about all of that. But they really have to, to oppose us. They just can't, they just can't tolerate um, they just can't tolerate the 
existence of the United States or a, a competitor. Well, China imports more than a third of its food and something like uh, 60% of its fuel. Uh, and it also exports a great deal. Like They don't have much of an internal Chinese economy. And as the population ages, one of the things that happens when people retire um, and can no longer work, they consume less um, and they don't invest in risky investments anymore, right? They don't need the big, they, they're, they're drawing out their money. So they want their money in safe places. So they don't produce because they don't work. They consume less than, than other people do and they don't invest. They become, um, I don't say useless people, but in the society, they are not useful. Let's put it that way. Okay. And they are not able to uh, drive the economy forward. You need young people. <laughs> young people produce and they consume. And while, you know, they don't consume as much as they do later on and in their, you know, teens and 20s, they do consume. And there are a lot of them. If there are a lot of them, they consume. They get into their, their you know, late 20s and 30s. They have families. They begin to consume at the highest levels. And they become more prosperous as they head into their 50s. They become investors. They invest They invest their money in, I don't want to say risky, but, you know, they, re, re, they invest their money in high return and high reward um, investments that, are, that drive the economy and, and create more production and, and thus more consumption. Okay, so that's all very good. Once people get old and retire, then they leave that system. You don't want a large percentage of your population be retiring right? To be, to be over that point. So that's a big problem. But anyway, their economy is an export economy. They have to be able to export goods from China to other places in order to make money, right? <clears throat> and that's very important. So <laughs> why is China the biggest loser in Ukraine, right? China's not even involved in Ukraine. Well, Putin's attack on Ukraine, First of all, Putin and Xi, President Xi Jinping of, of, uh, Russia, of, of China, are very good friends. The Russian and the Chinese are very good friends. And they've been allies. And they're, they're allies of convenience because they're against the U.S. They have that in common. We're the big, you know, 500-pound gorilla in the world. And they both want a shot at us. They want to they weaken us. So they have that in common. Putin attacks Ukraine. He thinks it's going to be over quickly. And it isn't. Ukraine's fighting back. The West is showing resolve. That shows that if... China attacked Taiwan, we would likewise show resolve. We would fight back. We would push the Chinese out. We're already arming Taiwan in ways that we weren't before. Now we're paying attention. But what's more, China's not been in the U.S. market as much as they have in, in past years. They've been exporting more of their goods to Europe, right? And because Russia invaded Ukraine, Europeans are paying attention. See, Donald Trump went to Europe and said, hey, you can't keep you know, patronizing this Putin guy, Russia's going to turn on you. And by the way, China isn't your friend either. And they're like, oh, Donald Trump, <laughs> what does he know? He's just an American and, you know, racist and blah, 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 blah. So they ignored him. Funny thing, Putin is invading Ukraine <clears throat> and patronizing Putin was a bad idea. As it happens, <laughs> and guess what? China is not your friend, Right? Xi Jinping is not your friend. He's another dictator, just like Putin, who wants to take over other countries. He wants to invade Taiwan. He wants China to be able to dominate South Korea and Japan, the Philippines, Southeast Asia, right? He wants China to be the power in the Pacific, not the United States, right? And Europe is seeing that. 
And now it's become a wedge. Europeans are trading less with China and they're relying on other trade partners, Southeast Asia, India, uh, and of course the U.S. So China's the biggest loser here, right? Uh, they're, they're, they're losing big. So real quick, what happens if China attacks Taiwan? And I, I was just talking about their food, fuel, and, and their exports. If China attacks Taiwan, one thing we know for absolute certain that will happen is the United States will blockade China. There'll be an embargo. Not just an embargo, a blockade. Like, we will not allow trade with China, okay? That doesn't even involve the United States joining the war, right? So China could just invade Taiwan, attack Taiwan. The Taiwanese are fighting back. The United States makes no action against China except the embargo and the blockade, right? Well... If China imports a huge chunk of its food, if China imports a huge chunk of its fuel, if the Chinese economy is built around exports, then that's bad. Uh, I mean, seriously, you have to think about it, right? The, the, there's a lot of land in China that's used for cash crops, and, and they could grow more food and find other ways to, to produce food if they wanted to, but you can't do that in a day. Okay, agricultural land, you have to plan, you have to plant crops, you have to wait for them to grow and mature, right? And you also have to have the fuel to harvest them with machinery, preferably, to process. You have to have fuel to have energy, to have electricity, to process these uh, grains and foods, right, and animal meats and what have you, and to transport them, right? So if China attacked Taiwan within 30 days, I mean, they'd be hauling food to the markets in ox-drawn carts like it's the Ming Dynasty, <laughs> okay? I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get medieval, and it's going to get medieval quickly. So the combination of factors... The West has shown resolve in defending Ukraine. The Europeans have realized that China is not their friend and are trading less with China, which is weakening China's economy as it stands. And China's import-export fuel situation show you that China is in a very, very weak position when it comes to any kind of attack or invasion. They can't withstand. People would be starving to death in China within 45 to 60 days. And we're not talking about five people starving to death. Okay, it's a country of 1.2 or 1.3 billion. They, they've admitted that they've been fudging their numbers. So we really don't know. Uh, <clears throat> you know, a quarter of the population could could starve to death within a matter of four or five months. And who are those people going to be? At first, the elderly, the infirm, young children, sadly, you know, those people who are most vulnerable to starvation. Right. And then it's going to start being the working age people. Right. And I mean, I, I don't know. You're working in a factory producing war materials and your whole family starving. Your kids have starved to death. Your you know, kid or kids, you know. But anyway, you know, your, your one child, right? Your, your, your little toddler has starved to death. Your grandparents have starved to death. Your parents are starving. Your siblings are starving. You and your wife are starving and you're working in a munitions plant. I mean, what's your motivation to keep working for the Communist Party? So, um... The invasion of Taiwan is almost certainly not going to happen. China is going to have to be contained until it collapses in, by the end of the decade. We're kind of on course to do that. More on that in the future. But the point is, you know, it, China is a total disaster. And we're, we're going to see. I mean, you know, they're going to collapse in the coming years.
it is time for another news. In other news is a Facebook page that you can follow on Facebook where you can get all of the news that isn't uh, present in the American news cycle, right? You know, you get all the international news and the news that you don't see everywhere else. So follow in other news on Facebook and get the stories that don't make the American news. Be informed. Know what's going on in the world. And one of the things you will find out from in other news is that there has been a coup in Niger. There's been a lot of chaos in sub-Saharan Africa in uh, recent years. A lot of violence, Islamic uh, jihadists trying to take over these countries. And economic situation has deteriorated. Um, unfortunately, and, and especially in the Francophone countries, in the, in the former French colonies, they are a real disaster. English colonies have generally turned out better. The Anglophone colonies have generally pulled it off, um, you know, better than the Francophone. And the less said of Portuguese colonies, the better. <clears throat> anyway, uh, so, you know, in recent days here, um, this last week, tensions have been rising. And finally, <clears throat> the military has risen up. So Niger's president, Mohamed Bazoum, is under lock and key, uh, government institutions have been suspended and the border is closed. The leader of the coup, or at least the spokesman for them, seems to be this Colonel Major Amadou uh, Abdramane. Abdramane is saying that um, the poor economic and, and social conditions and the, the weakening, you know, the deteriorating security situation is why they have risen up against the president. And they've called on the international community not to interfere while they, you know, stabilize the situation in the country. You know, the usual thing you would expect the, the leaders of a coup to, to say. Not that, you know, uh, Bazoum was democratically elected or anything. This is Niger, unfortunately. Um, there aren't really any good guys. There's some legitimacy and then there's no legitimacy, I guess you could say. Meanwhile, UN Secretary General Guterres and uh, Secretary of State Anthony Anthony Blinken, you know, Blinken and Guterres have said that they support Bazoum uh, and his uh, right to stay in power. <sighs> For what it's worth, um, it's a mess in Niger, but now you know there is a coup in Niger, and we'll see what happens here in the future, uh, whether the president is returned to power or uh, the country just deteriorates. So, with that, it has been another awesome episode of Inside Israel News. I don't want it to drone on forever, so I'm going to bring it to a close. Episode 100 coming up. Next episode, your questions uh, and such uh, will be the first segment, and then I'll go on and, and talk about other things. Looking forward to it. Uh, got some interesting things that people, comments that people have made and, and questions. So uh, I'm looking forward to, to doing that. So special episode for episode 100. And, uh, yeah, as always, find uh, Inside Israel News on Facebook, on, um, you can find me on Twitter, you can find on uh, TikTok, on Instagram, Inside Israel News. And you can visit InsideIsrael.News to stream the podcast. You can also stream on PoliticalVanguard.com. Political Vanguard is the home of Inside Israel News. Find Inside Israel News and, you know, reach out. You can also email InsideIsraelNews at gmail.com. Anyhow, with that, I will say, as always, goodbye, Lehitrot.